We continue this morning in our series of the book of Judges, and this morning we come to Judges chapter 7, and I'd like to read it for us this morning. Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce the army. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets... Then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the, 300, and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bashita, toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and see the waters, seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. 
and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Bera. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zerub at the winepress of Zerub. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning empty and ask that you would fill us. We come to you hungry and ask that you would feed us. We come needing perspective and ask that you would teach us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people are not familiar with the book of Judges, but if they know one character from the book of Judges, maybe it's Samson or maybe it's Gideon. And if they know of Gideon, they may know of this story that is read in Judges chapter 7. We're picking up the narrative from two weeks ago when Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this spiritual cycle that goes throughout the book of Judges begins The Israelites do evil in God's sight, and God, in response, gives his people over to their enemies, in this case, the Midianites. They are oppressed by the Midianites for seven years, and then God raises up a deliverer in Gideon. Two weeks ago, we learned that Gideon was from the weakest clan in Manasseh. He was the least in his father's house, and yet God calls him to be the deliverer of God's people. God gives him multiple assurances that he will be with him and help him, most famously in the fleeces. Judges 7 then picks up this story. Gideon and the Israelites are encamped beside the spring of Herod. The Midianites are encamped north of them in the valley, and both are poised for battle. There is a surprising theme in this battle. It is this, the weakness of Gideon and Israel. It is surprising because weakness is not on display in our culture. The way of our culture, the way of the world, is strength and success. There is an old Charlie Brown cartoon where Lucy asks a depressed Charlie Brown why he's so down. And Charlie Brown says, I feel inferior. And Lucy says, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people have that feeling. And Charlie asks, what, that they're inferior? And Lucy replies, no, that you're inferior. (laughs) It's our worst nightmare, right? Our feelings of feeling inferior are confirmed by other people. Other people see us the way that we're feeling. It's our worst nightmare. Our culture tries to hide any weakness and inferiority and instead put our best face on, which is a face of strength and success. Let me give you an example I read recently. It's from an article uh, that appears in the New York Magazine from January 29th, uh, it's recent, It's entitled, Inventing the Perfect College Applicant. And and this article explains how super wealthy families hire independent education consultants to help their children get into elite colleges. So one such firm called Command Education charges families $120,000 per year to create a narrative that will get their student into an elite college. They offer personalized white glove service to curate a student's extracurriculars, help them land summer internships, start blogs and companies that they can write about, polish accolades to a high shine, craft essays, all in order to develop what they call a passion project. Making a student highly specialized with a specific talent or passion where they are so good at something that it dares the admissions officer not to accept them or regret it later. 
In one recent survey, one-third of Horace Mann high schoolers admitted to working with a private consultant. But even this becomes competitive. One parent at an elite school in Manhattan offered a very successful and highly paid education consultant $1.5 million not to work with any other student in his, in his child's class. When the consultant declined the offer, the parent joked that maybe he should just buy the company altogether. In this elite world, many people use an education consultant, but no one wants it known. So it's very common, apparently, to have the consultant sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Because, you know, we want to appear as, as strong, as successful, not as weak and insecure. We, we're all trying to build that perfect resume, aren't we? That's filled with strength and success. No one would write this on their resume, for example. I was fired from my last position due to low performance. <laughs> no one would write under the skills section of their resume, I can usually type without looking at the keyboard. <laughs> or, I struggle with follow through and frequently procrastinate. That may be true, but we're not going to say that. There's no way we're going to admit to our weaknesses, our insecurities, our failures. Because we know that the way of the world is strength and success. And into this world comes Judges 7. That shows us that weakness is the way for Gideon. I took the sermon title from a book by J.I. Packer entitled the same, Weakness is the Way. And he writes this short little book to make this point. The Christian way of life and service is a walk of weakness, as human strength gives out, and only divine strength can sustain and enable. And in this book, J.I. Packer talks about how he himself has experienced the weakness that is the way that the Bible calls for. Weakness is not just the way for Gideon and for J.I. Packer. We also heard it for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament reading that Jojo read. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says God's power is not just active in weakness, but made perfect in weakness. My friends, this is countercultural. This is counterintuitive. We spend all our lives pursuing strength and success when God says weakness is the way. That's countercultural, that's counterintuitive. Judges 7 teaches us this morning that weakness is the way that we best experience God's strength. To embrace this and to understand this, I think we need to see three things in Judges 7 that I want to point out this morning. It's these. The weakness we experience, the providence that is at work, and the victory that God accomplishes. The weakness we experience, the providence that is at work, and the victory that God accomplishes. First, the weakness that we experience. Before uh, God sends Gideon into this battle with the Midianites, he gives Gideon very strange instructions. He says in verse 2, you have too many men. Which is a very strange thing to say. Because Judges 8 tells us that the Midianite army numbered 135,000. Judges 7 tells us the Israelites number 32,000. They are already outnumbered 4 to 1. So wait a second, God. How can you say you have too many men? But God says you have too many men. In verse 3, he gives Gideon very specific instructions. He says, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back. And there's some logic to this, isn't there? 
This is actually a principle right out of Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, where God is giving him his people instructions for a battle and for war. He says, let anyone who is afraid or faint-hearted go home so that fellow soldiers will not become disheartened. I mean, we know this. Fear is contagious. And if there's fear all through the ranks, then it'll affect the morale of the whole troop. Gideon, I don't think, is prepared for what happens when he says this. If you're scared, you can leave. 22,000 men leave, and only 10,000 remain. And it shows us from a distance how bleak victory is in this situation. When given the chance to leave out of fear, two-thirds of the men say, okay, I'll leave. Now Israel is outnumbered 13 to 1. And maybe you could make the case like now Israel is willed down to the truly elite strong soldiers. It's now this, this, this troop, though small, is elite and strong. They're lean and mean. But God's not done. He says to Gideon, you still have too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you. And when I told what Gideon thinks, maybe he thought this is a little crazy, but he obeys. He takes the men down to the water. 9,700 of the men get down on their knees to drink. 300 of them lap water with their hand in their mouth. And God says to them, those 300 men who lapped water with their hands, cupped hands, I'm going to use them to deliver Midian into your hands. And so Gideon sends, crazy enough, he sends 9,700 men home and keeps 300. Some commentators try to make the case that the 300 are chosen because in this little incident of, of drinking water, they demonstrate vigilance. They demonstrate that they are the superior soldiers who always stay alert and vigilant. But that's not what the text says. And God's purpose here is not to create an elite group of soldiers for Gideon. So why does God reduce the Israelite army to 300? So that now Israel, Israel is outnumbered 450 to 1. God explains his purposes in verse 2. He says, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. There it is. God's purpose is to reduce Gideon's army to the size where Israel cannot take credit for the victory. And I'd suggest to you that in this, God is showing that he recognizes human nature. That if we are given any room for self-boasting, we'll jump on it. Find a way to boast in ourselves. If we're given an inch to give ourselves a pat on the back, we'll give ourselves a pat on the back. If there's any way that we can take a little bit of the glory for ourselves, we'll take the glory for ourselves. If there's any way that we can depend on ourselves instead of God, we're going to depend on ourselves. And so God must make the odds so great that Israel can't boast in themselves or depend on their own strength. If the odds are 4 to 1 or even 13 to 1, Israel is still going to boast in themselves. They're still going to say, well, aren't we great? We beat these great odds. We're, the, we're so strong. God has to make the odds 450 to 1 to make Israel depend on him. So there's no room for boasting in their own strength. It shows how strong is this human tendency towards self-boasting. God has to put Gideon and Israel in a place where they're absolutely stripped of human confidence so that they will trust in the Lord. Until we recognize our dependence on God, until we give him credit 
for the things that we're able to accomplish, God might say to us, you have too many men. You see, to experience God's strength, there is a weakness that we need to experience. Because without this weakness, we'll boast in ourselves. We'll depend on our own strength. Here's an example of how God loves to use uh, weakness. It's an example from another century. William McCulloch was a parish minister in Scotland around 1740, and no one would have picked William McCulloch to lead a revival. He was a scholarly pastor. He excelled in languages, especially Hebrew, and he studied a lot, but he didn't have preaching skills. He was not a very good speaker. His own son described him this way. He was not a very ready speaker, though eminent for learning and piety. He was not eloquent. His manner was slow and cautious, very different from that of the popular speakers. In fact, William McCullough was, was known as an ale minister, A-L-E minister, which meant that when he rose to speak, a number in the congregation took it, the opportunity to go get an ale from the local tavern. <laughs> ale minister obviously was not a compliment. And yet God used William McCullough to spark a revival in Cambus Lang, Scotland, just before George Whitfield visited. So that in response to the revival, the people wouldn't say, what a great preacher William McCulloch was. They would say, what a great God we have. My friends, God loves to use weak vessels to just demonstrate his power. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I point out, when Paul calls himself a jar of clay, he's not referring to his strength, but to his weakness. Because apparently, the Apostle Paul did not cut a very impressive figure in person. My friends, if God is going to use us, there is a weakness that we experience. For Gideon, God says to him, you have too many men. For Paul, as we heard in the New Testament reading this morning, he gives him a thorn in the flesh. And we'd love to know what this is. Commentators guess and we, we wonder. About it. But at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what this was. Was it, was it a physical impediment? We're not sure. But it was a thorn in the flesh, which means that whatever it was, it was painful. It was a thorn. If you're ever gardening and you absolutely gra grab hold of a thorn, it's, it's very painful. It's painful. It, whatever it is, it's chronic. Paul asks the Lord three times to take it away. It's painful. It's chronic. It's humbling. Paul says God gives him this thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. Whatever this is, it's painful, it's chronic, it's humbling. I wonder if God has ever said to us, you have too many men. Or if he has given any of us a thorn in the flesh. Perhaps it's some limitation that you are so frustrated by. Some personal limitation you just hate and you're always working up against it and trying to get over it and you can't. Perhaps it's a chronic illness. Perhaps it's a failure that you just can't shake. This, this sense of failure in the, in the past, you can't, just can't get past it. Perhaps it's some loss. Or some relational breakup. It's weakness, it's failure, and it's hard to accept. I, I know people who have said to me, I just don't like myself. I don't like myself. I, I hate these insecurities. I can't forgive myself for this failure. And if you feel that way, sometimes we feel stuck and we're like, how, how do I move on? How do I, how do I move forward? And my friends, here in Judges 7 is a way to accept our weaknesses and not just accept them, but embrace them. 
by seeing them as an opportunity to experience God's strength. Because here in Judges 7, the greater the weakness, the greater the experience of God's power and His grace and His strength. Perhaps you can think of it this way. If you need money, and you were to go to Warren Buffett, he was a person, he's a personal friend, and you were to go to him and you say, like, I, you know, I, I, I need $10. And he gives it to you, you would not be experiencing the true measure of his wealth. But if you went to Warren Buffett and said, I need $10 million, and he actually gave it to you, you would be experiencing the true measure of his wealth. My friends, in the same way, if you go to God with greater weakness and greater need, there is a potential that your experience will be greater of his strength and of his grace. This is what enables Paul to not just accept his weaknesses, but to boast in them and delight in his weaknesses. Because he says, in my weaknesses, then Christ might be glorified. In my insecurities, Christ might become greater. His strength might be seen for what it is. My friends, if we want to experience God's strength, the full measure of it, there is a weakness that we must experience. Secondly, there is a providence that is at work. On the night before the battle, God knows Gideon is still afraid, and so he, uh, he reassures him. Consider with me how God reassures Gideon. Verses 9 and 10, he says, the night before the battle, he says to Gideon, get up and go down into the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, and he knows Gideon's still afraid, he says, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Gideon slips down into the Midianite camp in the darkness, and you have to admit, imagine the moment. It's not too hard. I mean, he's slipping down into the enemy camp. It's dark. His heart is pounding. One false move, and he's a dead man. The Midianites and Amalekites, we're told, are in the settled in the valley as thick as locusts. It's a sight that will make the bravest man quiver with fear. The, uh, Gideon sees the camels that are, can no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. I mean, there's just unlimited military power. These details are given to us just to underscore emotionally that from a human standpoint, there, there is no hope for victory. Gideon and his servant Pira crawl up to one of the tents and they hear men talking and they hear this conversation. One of the men says, I had this dream of a round a loaf of barley tumbling into the Midianite camp and it struck the tent with such force that the tent collapsed. And the other man in the tent says, you know, uh, I, I think that's nothing other than the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. I mean, these are the exact same words that God said to Gideon, but now on the lips of a Midianite foot soldier. And this is the assurance that Gideon needs. I would suggest to you that this is a remarkable providence of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defi uh, defines God's providence as this. It is his most holy, wise, powerful, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and their actions. There is a guard who's in charge governing all his creatures, all their actions. And maybe, well, many of us in this room believe that there is a God in charge of the world. We believe in God's providence governing the universe, keeping it in motion. Psalm 115, our God is in the heaven. He does all he pleases. But do you believe 
that God's providence oversees all the smallest details in your life and mine. Jesus says that God numbers the hairs on our head. Jesus says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside of the Father's care. That's pretty specific. That's pretty detailed. Consider God's providence for Gideon here. He orchestrates everything that happens here in this little episode for Gideon's assurance. And pause with me for just a moment. I mean, consider the complexity and coordination required to make this moment of assurance happen. I mean, God's got to send a dream to one of the th- one among 135,000 Midian soldiers. Got to, got to give one of them a dream. Make sure he's in the t- same tent as another man that he gives the, the interpretation to. He, he needs to make sure they're in the same tent. And then he needs to bring Gideon at just the right moment, just the right tent, just the right moment, to hear this conversation. I mean, there are thousands of tents. If Gideon goes up to the wrong tent, he doesn't hear this conversation. If Gideon shows up a few minutes too early or a few minutes too late, he doesn't hear this conversation. I mean, think about the complexity and coordination involved in this assurance of Gideon. God orchestrates all the details to provide assurance for Gideon. Judges 7 shows us a providence that is at work. I've been encouraged by God's providence. I think a number in our church have. Here's a very memorable example that some of you know well, some of you may not know as well because you're newer. In 2015, when our church was contemplating a building project, the building that's built behind me, we faced a very daunting task. It was just a lawn before that building was built. And there was some question whether we could even build in the back of our property with the setback limitations. There was a question of whether our congregation, smaller at that time, could raise enough money to afford a building project. I remember introducing the idea of 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 a building project at a congregational meeting. And after the meeting, someone I didn't know at the time came up to me and said, I'd be interested in helping. I said, great, great to hear. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and what you do? And he told me that he was the head of the Army Corps of Engineers in Manhattan. I said, wait, like not just the, like all of Manhattan, like all of Manhattan. He was the, uh, the, in charge of the whole Army Corps of en- Engineers. And I said, I think we have a place for you. <laughs> God's providence provides. When it came time for a capital campaign, I said to myself, how, how am I going to do this in the midst of all my other pastoral responsibilities? I've never led a capital campaign. How am I going to do this? And there was in the congregation at the time a CFO who was in between positions, and he heard about this. He said, I would love to help. Can you put me to use? God's providence provides. We were not a large congregation at the time, but through two campaigns, God provided $2 million pledges. Then the question was whether our building plans would pass the Montclair Zoning Board, especially because we were applying for a number of variances because of setback limitations. And also our neighbor was dead set opposed to our project. And he said, I'm going to speak up against your project. We had no idea whether we would pass. It was a five-hour hearing. At one point, the zoning board seemed so opposed to our project that our civil engineer put his head in his hands and says, we're sunk, we're not going to pass. In the 11th hour, the zoning board chairperson himself put in a good word for our project, and we were approved after five hours at one in the morning. We had to pinch ourselves to make sure that we were not dreaming. There is a providence that is at work, like Gideon. 
so for us in our daily details of life. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there's a storyteller. I need to say that God's providence, I don't think, is the same thing as guidance. Just because in God's providence there is an open door doesn't mean we should walk through it necessarily. And just because in God's providence there is a closed door doesn't mean that we shouldn't persevere through it. See, we still need God's wisdom to interpret the circumstances in front of us. God's providence is not the same thing as guidance. But God's providence does provide us encouragement and assurance that God is in control and in the details. When Gideon experiences God's remarkable providence, he bows down and worships. When we experience God's remarkable providence, At the zoning board at 1 a.m., we bow down and worship in the parking lot of the municipal building at 1.30 in the morning. There is a weakness that we experience. There is a providence that is at work. And then third and last, there is a victory that God accomplishes. After Gideon receives this assurance from God, he goes back to the Israelite camp with renewed confidence. And he rises to the men and says, get up. The Lord is giving Midianite into our hands. And he divides his 300 men up into three companies. Each man gets a trumpet and an empty clay jar with a torch inside, which I point out is not your usual equipment for battle. Not one of them has a weapon that they can defend themselves with. Gideon gives his men these instructions. Verse 17, he says, watch me. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow out our trumpets, then blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So these three companies reached the edge of the Midianite camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after the guards changed. It's probably about 10 p.m. at night. Gideon gives a sign. They blow their trumpets, they smash their jars, they hold up their torches, and they shout for Gideon, for the Lord and for Gideon. And a great panic and confusion ensues in the Midianite camp. Those who are awake see the torches all around their camp. They they assume they're surrounded. Those who are asleep and wake up and hear all the commotion assume that the enemy is already infiltrated the camp. And in the panic and confusion, the Lord caused the men in the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The Midianites flee to the east and Gideon and the Israelites pursue them. And a great victory is won that day. Against all odds, against 450 to 1 odds, they win. It is a victory that God himself accomplishes. Yes, Gideon has a very resourceful strategy. He attacks at night during the change in the guard when the Midianites were the most vulnerable. He surrounds the camp so that they appear far far larger than they really are, far greater than they really are. So it's a resourceful, masterful strategy, but the text is clear on who wins the battle. Verse 22, it's the Lord who caused the Midianites to turn on each other. God accomplishes this victory when Israel has no weapons. All they do is blow their trumpets and then they stand and watch the victory that God wins. Judges 7 points, I think, to a greater victory that God accomplishes. There is a reference in Isaiah 9 to this battle of Midian. I think you'll recognize these verses. 
They begin this way, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, this, this battle we've just been talking about, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that bur burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As a way of saying, there is a greater enemy of God's people than the Midianites. It is Satan, the devil that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there is a greater deliverer of God's people than Gideon. His name is Jesus Christ, called by God, clothed with the Spirit for this task of deliverance. And there is a greater victory than Judges 7. It is the victory over sin and Satan and death that Jesus accomplishes at the cross. At the very heart of the gospel is this idea of victory through weakness. God accomplishes this victory for us. And to experience and enter into this victory that has been won for us, we don't have to lift up a weapon. We have to express a faith that is translated into obedience, a faith that expresses itself in obedience, just as Gideon and the men did. They had a faith that expressed itself in obedience. They obeyed God, and they stood and watched as God won the victory for them. My friends, Judges 7 shows us that weakness is the way. Weakness is the way that we are saved from our sins. See, to be saved, we need a Savior. We need to recognize our need for a Savior. And to recognize our need for a Savior, we need to recognize our weakness. We need to recognize our inability to save ourselves. Because as long as we think of ourselves as strong and successful and self-sufficient, we'll never come to Christ. We won't. Why would we need to if we're self-sufficient? Weakness is the way that we're saved. Weakness is the way that we grow in the Christian life. See, all the Christians I know grow most in times of weakness and hardship, not in times of ease and strength. I wish it were the other way around, but it's, we grow the most in times of hardship and weakness. Why? It's because in times of weakness and hardship, we are forced to depend on God. If the odds are 4 to 1 or 13 to 1, we'll depend on ourselves. We'll just gear up and say, I can do this. I'm strong. I can, I can take this on. It's not until the odds are 450 to 1 that we learn truly how to depend on God and therefore learn truly how to experience his strength and his grace. Weakness is a way that we grow in the Christian life, and then weakness is a way that we're used by God. God chooses Gideon, the weakest in his clan, the least in his family, God puts his treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. God loves underdogs and outsiders and the unlikely, which I think gives us a new perspective on weakness. The way of the world is strength and success. The way of the gospel and the way of Christ is weakness. Weakness is the way to best experience God's strength. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Judges 7 that shows us that weakness is the way.
Lord, we confess to you, we spend so much time shoring up our own strength and, strengths and abilities so we can be independent. Would you help us now with this insight to embrace our weaknesses and insecurities and insufficiencies as opportunities to experience your grace and power and strength. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.